Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello, listeners. Thanks for finding your way to the Mod Pod where selected authors from each issue of Modern Optometry read their articles here on this podcast, so if you're short on time and can't get through an entire issue, you don't have to miss out. In this month's episode, we're still covering articles from the May-June issue on training staff for specialty lenses, sudden onset diplopia, practice marketing, and our up-close column featuring Mod Editorial Advisory Board member Richard Mangan. Without any further ado, here's Stephanie Wu, optometrist at the Contact Lens Institute of Nevada, with her insightful article on how to train staff for specialty lenses. When I completed my cornea and contact lens residency, I was eager to start fitting specialty contact lenses. Then I got my first job in Arizona at a private practice, practice that did not fit any specialty contact lenses at all. Most of my day was filled with comprehensive eye exams, soft contact lens fittings, glasses, pre- and post-operative care for cataract and refractive surgeries, and medical eye examinations. Even though the practice was located in a small rural town with a total population of about 50,000, I was determined to figure out a way to integrate specialty contact lenses into the clinic. Here's how I did it. The pointers presented here may help you do the same. I began by having a talk with the owner of the clinic. I explained to him my passion for specialty contact lenses, and he agreed that it was a service that was definitely needed. But neither of us had a clue how to integrate this new service into a practice that was already functioning at a high level. We routinely saw 40 patients per day. So on top of seeing our patients for regular exams, we needed to develop a plan to be able to start seeing specialty contact lens patients too. Because the staff members had no idea what specialty contact lenses were, I had to call all of the shots at first. I developed a protocol and a schedule that I thought would help build the specialty lens section of the clinic. We then had a meeting with the staff to inform them of the new service that we would be providing. We had to educate them on the basics what specialty contact lenses are, and how they differ from regular contact lenses. We also educated staff about the characteristics of good candidates and the key terminology. Trigger words included scleral lenses, hard contact lenses, rigid gas permeable lenses, rigid lenses, hybrid contact lenses, custom contact lenses, keratoconus, irregular astigmatism, corneal transplant, and radial keratotomy scarring. We had staff members keep a notepad with all of these words close to their desk. That way, if a patient called with a question about a particular service or lens, they knew whether it was one that we offered or not. Once we started gaining specialty lens patients, we scheduled them and blocked out an entire hour for each visit. Because none of the other employees knew anything about specialty contact lenses, I had to do everything myself. I took all the images, reviewed everything with the patient, went over pricing, performed all of the diagnostic fitting, completed the training for lens insertion and removal, 
and saw the patient for all follow-up visits. After the first two months, we could see that the schedule was eating away at precious doctor time. We knew that we needed to develop a strategy as soon as possible to get staff members trained to help me with these patients. The first area to get help was very obvious, contact lens insertion and removal training. The practice already had technicians and opticians who were trained in helping patients with traditional soft contact lenses. So this would just be a new type of lens with just a few modifications. I had staff members watch a patient education video from the Scleral Lens Education Society, which is a nonprofit organization committed to helping practitioners learn how to fit and manage scleral lenses. Once a staff member watched the video, I had them shadow me during the training with a new patient. They took copious notes while they observed me. After that staff member had seen a few patients and felt comfortable, we switched roles. Now I was watching them complete the training with the patient and I was taking notes. Once the staff member and I felt completely comfortable, I let them take over all of the trainings. This helped my schedule immensely and made the practice much more efficient. Next, I had staff members help with the fitting process. I taught them how to read a diagnostic fitting set and they learned what all of the numbers, abbreviations, and words meant. I had them write down all of the lens parameters while I inserted a lens on the patient's eye. Then I would have them scribe for me. I would call out what I was seeing and they would write down everything in the fitting notes. They would clean and prepare the next diagnostic lens and help with other things such as turning the lights on and off and inserting fluorescein into the patient's eye. As staff members got more comfortable helping me with the lens fitting, I then trained them to help with specialty lens insertion. Scleral lenses are inserted and removed much differently than soft contact lenses, so I had them practice on each other during slow times or before we shut down the office for the day. Once they got a feel for how to insert a lens properly, I allowed them to assist on straightforward patients. At first, I helped them. So for example, I would hold the patient's eyelid for them. But over time, they were able to complete this scleral lens insertion process all by themselves. At the same time, I taught the staff how to capture images, such as OCT images, anterior segment images, and how to take proper measurements within those OCT images and record the data. I showed them how to take images of the lens edge, and then we would review everything together. Because the technicians already knew how to operate so much equipment for all the other exams, this was pretty easy to teach them. As I got more comfortable with the technicians applying and removing lenses, I then moved on to selecting an initial trial lens based on the patient's topography, exam history, and overall eye shape. I would then tell the technician which lens to select, and he or she would insert the lens and complete all of the necessary training. Our exam flow is a lot more streamlined now that I have staff members who can help me. When a patient comes to our office for a consultation for a specialty lens, the technicians perform all of the testing that is dictated in my specific protocol. Then I review all of the information with the patient and present all of their options. Once they have selected the type of fitting, we schedule them for a separate visit. When the patient returns, the first diagnostic lens is applied by the technician, who then performs all of the necessary testing. I come in at the end. I perform an over-refraction, I examine the lens at the slit lamp, 
And if everything looks fairly good, I take all of the information, imaging, and consult with the laboratory to get the final lenses ordered. When the lenses arrive and the patient comes in for their dispense, a staff member applies the lenses, checks the patient's vision, and performs all necessary testing. I come in and check the lens fit, and if everything is acceptable, the patient and the staff member then proceed to the insertion and removal training. The patient comes back again two weeks later, at which a staff member will check the vision and perform all of the testing. I will perform an over-refraction, look at the lenses, and make any necessary adjustments. Even if your staff members have no idea where to start with specialty lenses, it is quite easy to teach them. You just have to be committed to having them observe you or take the time before or after hours to educate them and have them practice on each other. They are fully capable of learning and they love to help. I have streamlined the specialty lens fit in our practice from having no help at first to now having so much help that I am barely a part of the process. If you have staff members who are motivated and you really want to incorporate specialty lenses into your practice, even if you are starting from zero, it is entirely possible to eventually have them helping you with most of your patients. As Dr. Wu succinctly described, staff can help with many aspects of the specialty lens fitting process, even if you are starting from zero. So if you want to offer these lenses in your clinic but are worried you don't have enough bandwidth, now you know you can train your staff to help out. Who doesn't find a complex case interesting? Molly Ann Clymer, an optometrist at the May Eye Care Center and Associates in Hanover, Pennsylvania, has an interesting one for us, specifically an unusual sudden onset of diplopia. Let's take a listen. A local physician assistant called me on a Monday morning to discuss a patient she had seen the day before with diplopia. At first, I assumed this would be the usual an older patient with an ischemic-induced nerve palsy. I quickly learned this was not the case when the caller explained that the patient was 43 years old, describing an acute onset of vertical diplopia for four days. I welcomed his urgent evaluation to our office that morning. The patient described a medical history including seasonal allergies and an unremarkable ocular history. He reported taking no systemic medications and had entering uncorrected visions of 2020 of the right eye and 2025 of the left eye. Confrontation visual fields were full to finger count in both eyes and extraocular muscle movement showed no restriction in any position of gaze. The distance cover test showed a constant right hypertropia in primary gaze with reports of vertical diplopia. The diplopia corrected with two prism diopters of base down prism in the right eye in primary gaze. The PARKS three-step testing revealed diplopia, worse in left gaze and right shoulder tilt. This testing confirmed involvement of the right superior oblique muscle. Color plates were normal with the patient correctly identifying 12 out of 12 plates in each eye. The pupil diameter was six millimeters in each eye in dim lighting with very minimal to no response to light. My initial thought was that the technician must have already dilated the patient prior to me entering the room, but after confirming no drops 
were used, it was obvious to me that the patient's pupils showed little response to light. I then evaluated the patient's response to a near accommodative target, which showed a very abrupt, brisk reaction. The anterior segment examination revealed a small pterygium in the right eye and unremarkable findings in the left. Posterior segment examination was unremarkable with minimal cupping of both optic nerves. I think optometrists are accustomed to seeing the vast majority of our patients with normal pupillary reactions to light. When I observed the patient's lack of pupillary response to light, I assumed it demonstrated a bilateral light near dissociation. Far from common, but quite attention grabbing, light near dissociation is the way to describe a patient who shows an intact near accommodative pupillary response with lack of normal pupillary light response. I recalled a short list of differentials to consider when observing light near dissociation. Keeping the light near dissociation in mind, I also had to remember the patient did not present with complaints of a pupillary issue, but rather the diplopia. The Parks three-step testing isolated the superior oblique muscle of the right eye. The superior oblique muscle is innervated by the right, in his case, the right fourth trochlear nerve. This case was demonstrating not only light near dissociation, but also a right fourth trochlear nerve palsy. Commonly considered differentials of a fourth nerve palsy include a congenital decompensated palsy, an acquired palsy from ischemic risk factors, a traumatic palsy, or a structural lesion affecting the pathway of the fourth nerve. The trochlear nerve has the longest course of all the cranial nerves. The four potential structural lesion locations are the midbrain, subarachnoid space, cavernous sinus, and the orbit. I was most suspicious of a structural lesion considering the patient's clinical presentation of light near dissociation and fourth nerve palsy. I knew that neuroimaging would be the most appropriate next step, so I ordered a STAT MRI of the brain with and without contrast. I typically like to include specific instructions to the radiologist to pay close attention to the dorsal midbrain region. I also ordered basic lab work, including a CBC complete blood count, an RPR, an FTA ABS, and Lyme titer. The patient had an immediate MRI of the brain with and without contrast, and the results were available the next morning. The radiologist included the MRI impression to read, enhancing mass centered in the pineal gland, mass effect on the tectum is likely. This typically causes Paranod syndrome, also known as dorsal midbrain syndrome. The tumor measured 1.1 by 1.1 by 0.9 centimeters in size. This most likely represented a pineocytoma with no evidence of aqueductal closure or hydrocephalus. 
No evidence of white matter lesions to suggest multiple sclerosis. A few days later, the lab results showed a normal, complete blood count, a negative Lyme titer, a non-reactive RPR, and a non-reactive FTA-ABS. This patient was a healthy man with an acute onset of vertical diplopia, secondary to fourth nerve palsy, and showed abnormal pupillary response consistent with light near dissociation, now identified to be secondary to an enhancing mass in the pineal gland. I previously had no experience with this diagnosis, and I knew that the patient most likely needed an urgent neurosurgical evaluation. Our practice is fortunate to have a close working relationship with a neuro-ophthalmologist colleague who commonly works with local neurosurgeons. Our colleague saw the patient urgently, confirmed my findings, reviewed the MRI results, and was able to schedule him with a neurosurgeon at a large university within a few days. The neurosurgeon performed a lumbar puncture that showed normal findings without abnormality of the cerebral spinal fluid and elected to conservatively monitor the patient. At the one month follow-up appointment, the patient interestingly reported less symptomatic diplopia and he was scheduled to have repeat neuroimaging in another six months. Repeat neuroimaging in six months showed the pineal gland tumor very similar in size and configuration to the baseline imaging with no change in appearance or enhancement. The patient reported being asymptomatic and therefore no further intervention was recommended at the time. Unfortunately, the last correspondence on this patient was received three years ago and he has now been lost to follow-up. The pineal gland is a small gland located in the midbrain and attached to the roof of the third ventricle. The superior colliculi of the midbrain are in close proximity to the pineal gland. Melatonin production is the primary function of the pineal gland. A pineocytoma is a rare, usually slow-growing tumor of the pineal gland that uncommonly spreads. The tumor arises from cells of the pineal gland, and the ideal treatment for pineocytoma is usually neurosurgery to remove the tumor. The location of these tumors is deep in the brain, making surgical removal difficult. In the case of our patient, it appears obvious that the neurosurgeon weighed risk versus benefit of surgery and opted to observe when the patient reported being less symptomatic. Dorsal midbrain syndrome, also referred to as Paranod syndrome, is a result of lesions affecting the dorsal midbrain region. This syndrome can occur in the setting of tumors, demyelination, inflammation, infection, trauma, hydrocephalus, arterial venous malformations, infarction, or hemorrhage. Tumor causes are more common in younger patients, and vascular changes are more common in older patients. Light near dissociation 
is explained by differences in the pupillary light and accommodation reflexes. The pupillary light reflex pathway begins with afferent pupillary fibers traveling from the retinal ganglion cells through the optic nerve, optic chiasm, and optic tract. They join the brachium of the superior colliculus and travel to the pretectal area of the midbrain, which sends fibers bilaterally to the efferent Edinger-Westphal nucleus. Efferent pupillary parasympathetic fibers leave the Edinger-Westphal nucleus and travel on the oculomotor nerve to synapse in the ciliary ganglion which sends axons in the short ciliary nerve to innervate the iris sphincter. The accommodation pupillary reflex starts similarly to the light reflex pathway, originating in the retinal ganglion cells and traveling through the optic nerve, optic chiasm, and optic tract. It diverges when most of the fibers synapse in the lateral geniculate nucleus of the thalamus. Neurons then carry the impulses through the optic radiations to the visual cortex. Impulses from the visual cortex travel to the prefrontal cortex with fibers then reaching the midbrain. Fibers there synapse with the oculomotor nucleus and Edinger-Westphal nucleus and complete the same course as the light reflex pathway to produce pupillary constriction. This patient's pineocytoma acted as a structural lesion, produced his light near dissociation due to damage to the pretectal and Edinger-Westphal nucleus. Compression resulted in loss of parasympathetic innervation to the iris sphincter, inhibiting the pupil's ability to respond to light. The pupillary light reflex nuclei are believed to be more dorsally located, making them more sensitive to compression. The pineocytoma also caused compression to the fourth nerve as it traveled through the midbrain, producing the vertical diplopia. Cases such as this one remind me to expect the unexpected. Acquired diplopia is not always going to be ischemic, age-related, congenital, or even traumatic in nature. Pupils are not always going to react briskly to light. Researching neuroanatomy is worth your time, will always make you better prepared for the next unusual case. I recommend welcoming as many referrals as you can, maintaining relationships with colleagues who can share in the care of these challenging patients and maximize the care you are trained to provide. Fascinating case. And as Dr. Clymer notes, a good reminder to expect the unexpected. Now, who is interested in learning how to market your practice using Facebook? Why Facebook specifically? Keep listening, and Jason Compton, optometrist and owner at Compton Eye Associates in New York, will explain everything and provide a step-by-step -step guide on how to use Facebook to your advantage.
Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. We optometrists spend a lot of time educating ourselves about new procedures, new technology, and improved techniques. In the end, it's all for one purpose, bringing new services to our patients. Unfortunately, the educational piece is not enough. In order to be successful practitioners, we need an effective marketing platform in order to engage and retain new patients. As marketing continues to shift from traditional paper, things like yellow pages, newspapers, to online media, things like Facebook and Instagram, practitioners need to adapt and evolve to remain visible in a saturated online market. Regrettably, offering a great product or service is no longer enough to find and keep patients. With the countless disruptors in our industry, we have to do more to break through and stand out. This may seem a bit overwhelming for the practitioner without a million dollar marketing budget, but fortunately, online social media platforms can help business owners reach large audiences effortlessly, effectively, and economically. I'll explain how to take your contact lens practice to the next level with a small budget and careful planning. It's important to understand the various social media platforms when you decide to get started with online marketing. Success can be found with many different networks. Pinterest holds 250 million monthly active users. Twitter averages 6,000 tweets a second. And platforms such as Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok surpass the 1 billion user mark on a monthly basis. But who is the biggest player of them all? Facebook. Facebook leads in both the number of active users and time spent on the platform. That doesn't guarantee, however, that your marketing efforts will be successful there. In order to get the attention of an audience, we have to play the marketing game. Fortunately, Facebook supplies us with multiple tools to win at that game. The best way to understand how to use Facebook effectively for your practice is to start by thinking about how you use Facebook on a personal level. Think about it. Do you follow your dentist or primary care doctor on social media? Most likely not. Facebook is designed to connect you to things that may be potentially interesting. For some, that's connecting with long-lost family or friends. For others, it's keeping up with fashions, tech devices, or the news. To achieve a successful Facebook campaign, we have to pull the user away from those things. This is done through something we call distraction marketing. We need to become that shiny little object that catches their attention. You may think, the average person is not interested in the benefits of specialty contact lenses, no matter how I present it. I beg to differ. Follow me as I create a simple campaign around myopia management while also tapping into potential patients' interests. The power behind Facebook marketing has everything to do with the information the company collects about its users. Facebook not only tracks a user's demographic information, like age, gender, things like that, it also collects financial status, where one went to school, political affiliations, websites visited, the list goes on and on and on. Now, this can be scary for some users, but for a marketer, this is amazing. I'll show you how to apply this feature in your marketing 
platform for Myopia Management. But first, make sure you have a Facebook business account. Once you log into your business account, you can promote your content. Facebook offers several marketing goals, but for the purpose of this tutorial, let's focus on get more bookings. After opening this section, you can create your ad. You can write your message, post a picture, and set the location of your audience. But for the purpose of this podcast, I really want to dive into what we call targeting. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we use distraction marketing to grab the user's attention. We do this by taking advantage of what we know about their interests. Here's how we can use the data that Facebook collects about us to promote our myopia management practice. Within the ad creation section, there's an area called audience. I want you to go ahead and find that once you log in. You can change the settings of the demographics of who actually views your ad. You can select people in your area and people who have previously liked your page. But again, let's focus specifically on targeting. Targeting opens up a world of information. With a quick scan, you can see the type of information Facebook is collecting on us. General categories include things like demographics, like we discussed before, but there's things like interests and behaviors. Clicking around a little more, you'll see that you can reach people based on their education, their employment, household, activities, intents, device usage. The list goes on and on and on. But how can we use this to promote our myopia management practice? Look under the family section You'll notice that the software actually catalogs parents, but it goes even a step further. It catalogs the age of children we have. If you look deeply, you can see you can target parents that have kids between zero to three years old, five to seven. You can really dial down specifically the type of parents you want to target. Now, this creates an extremely targeted audience for our myopia management because we know that these parents have children that would potentially benefit from the services we offer. Now, let's take that a step further. Maybe your office offers myopia management at a premium price range and you want to target higher income earners. What about interest? Clicking through this section, you can find and select interests that align with your ideal audience. Maybe you're looking for parents that read articles or follow websites on parenting, finding ways to be better parents. These are the types of people that may be more interested in what we have to say about myopia management. So what did we just create? An extremely targeted audience that includes high-income earners who have children between the ages of 3 and 12 and who are interested in becoming better parents. Your Facebook ad will only be shown to this audience. Now, as you move on to finish the ad, you will see that the pricing section is extremely reasonable. Facebook allows you to set your calendar of how long you want to run the ad and how much you actually want to spend per day. As you modify the numbers, Facebook actually will tell you how many people your ad will reach per day and how many of those people are likely to click your ad. Remember, you pay only when a user clicks your ad, not for the ad to be displayed. For example, if we agreed to spend $10 a day for 10 days, Facebook would project somewhere between 230 and 660 users mm -hmm. per day 
about 9 to 27 clicks per day. Do the math. This platform is connecting you to an ideal audience of over 2,000 to up to 7,000 people, all for just $100. Generating traffic into your practice doesn't require a huge budget or time. Just smart marketing, practice, and a little patience. The good news is that platforms such as Facebook offer multiple tools designed to ensure your success. Are you already using Facebook to market your practice? If not, are you now inspired to try it out? Let us know. Email us at modernod at bmctoday.com. We'd love to hear what you think of Mod's content and whether any of it influences you to make changes in your practice or processes. We're down to the last segment of the episode, our up-close column with Richard Mangan, who is assistant professor and clinical faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine Department of Ophthalmology in Boulder, Colorado, and a member of Mod's editorial advisory board. Mod's associate editor, Katie Herman, has a few questions for him. Let's find out what interested him most about following a career in optometry, what technological advances he finds particularly exciting, and whether any of Dr. Mangan's children intend to follow in his footsteps. Hi, Rich. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day here in Colorado, so good way to start the morning. Awesome. Well, are you ready to get started? I am. Awesome. What interested you most about a career in optometry? Yeah, great question. I, um, I knew, knew even when I was in high school, I wanted to go into the medical field, but I really took some time in college to kind of uh, observe doctors in different subspecialties. I spent some time in the emergency room at the University of Kentucky and spent some time shadowing some doctors. And um, after looking at quite a few different options, I'd kind of narrowed it down to optometry or uh, pharmacy and uh, pretty much just flipped the coin at that point. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> So what new technological advances have you found particularly exciting? Which, uh, which in the pipeline are you most enthusiastic or curious about? In the pipeline, yeah. You know, the technology has been amazing over my course of my career. The changes, certainly from a dry eye perspective, we've seen a lot of really uh, wonderful technology like mybography and things come about. But I've always been really fascinated with optics and have um, been really well, I've really enjoyed working with a lot of the implant technology and there's so many, so many, I guess, well-designed implants these days compared to when I started. Uh, it's really exciting technology to work with. What advice do you have for someone just starting out who wants to get involved in the profession? So I guess the first thing would be um, kind of decide how you want to get involved. For some, it's more along the medical side. For some, it's more the political side. But whatever fits your personality and goals best, just let it be known, make it known to some of the key opinion leaders around you. And then um, try to be patient as those, as those opportunities develop and they will develop, especially if you have a true interest, mm -hmm. get to a point where you have to learn to say no. So, uh, so be patient, it, it will come. That's great. What lessons has your work life taught you? I think it's, you know, most of us are, um, you get to this level, 
get a, a professional degree. They're very driven people and people that are um, very goal oriented. And that's a great thing, a great attribute. But for me, I know personally, I had to learn how to really work on balance and uh, not, not, let, not let work take over. That was a struggle early on, but um, I think I've gotten a lot better about it. So that's what I would encourage for others is just make sure you carve out enough time to smell the roses and, uh, and enjoy the accomplishments you do achieve. Yeah, work-life balance is always a tough one to figure out. <laughs> it can be. Um, are any of your children interested in a career in optometry? As a father in the medical profession, are there particular values that have been important for you to instill in your son and daughters? Well, um, to date, no, none of my trusted <laughs> interest in eye care. I'm not sure how to take that, but uh, <laughs> um, no, I've got I've, my oldest daughter's in her second year of college, and she's interested in becoming a nurse. Uh, my son is interested in a trade, and so he's uh, working toward that. And then my youngest daughter, who will be a senior in high school, has expressed an interest in either medical school or um, she's mentioned being a nurse anesthetist. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. And uh, you know, as far as values, I, I just they're all it's so funny. They're oh, I have three kids that are within four years of age. I mean, uh, relatively close together. And it's, it's really fascinating to see how different their personalities are and core values are a little bit different. I don't know how much of it's I, I've instilled or them being around good uh, role models. They're certainly active in our church, so their faith is strong. And so all of the things I think are helping them shape them into being very special people. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's always so cool to see their different personalities. I have a young daughter and uh, huh? She's turning two in August, so <laughs> her personality is still uh, on the show. <laughs> yeah, that's such a wonderful age. Yeah, we had, I remember at one point we had uh, three kids, all three kids were in car seats. So uh, thank <laughs> God for many things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, a little fun fact about you, you handcraft tobacco pipes. How did you get into that? Yeah, um, I guess I gave my interest in these pipes to my grandfather. He was um, stationed in Italy when he was in the army. And when he came back, he brought back these really beautiful handmade handcrafted pipes, very intricate design. And, uh, and I always enjoyed visiting him because he'd, he'd be smoking out of one of them and the aroma was just amazing. So that kind of got me started. And then, um, I don't know, I guess I just needed an outlet, something to use that other half of my brain, my creative side, just to kind of, it was, it's really more for stress relief than anything else. And, uh, next thing I know, it kind of got bigger and bigger. So, but I enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy it. It's uh, more of a hobby than anything. Do you, um, like how often do you make them? Well, um, and there was a period of time where I was, I was uh, working on a pipe, you know, three, four days a week uh, in my spare time. But then I realized I had about a hundred pipes in my, in my, <laughs> my room. And I said, Ooh, maybe I should, uh, I got to figure out what to do here. Do I sell them or, or just keep going? So, um, 
but it kind of ebbs and flows. And of course, you know, life gets in the way and kid yeah. and all that stuff, but it's, it's not uncommon for me, at least a couple days a week to at least sit out and enjoy one and uh, just relax out on my porch. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rich, for joining us and being our Up Close feature this month. It was great speaking with you. That does it for this episode of the Mod Pod. Don't forget, you can read all of these articles online at modernod.com. Also look for our July-August issue in the coming weeks. In the meantime, stay in touch by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Stay in the know by visiting iwire.news and check out itube.net for our other podcasts and video series, which are all featured under the optometry tab. Meet you back here next month.